0: you're listening to love stories with me dolly alderton a series in which i talk to guests about their most defining relationships the passion heartbreak longing familiarity and fondness that has formed who they are my guest this week is the author scriptwriter, performer and former doctor adam kaye his writing credits include work on very British stalwarts, such as Michelin Webb, Blind Dates, and Mrs. Brown's Boys. But it is the storytelling of his own experience that has made him a household name. This is going to hurt. The diaries of his time as a junior doctor chronicles the hilarious, bizarre, grotesque, exhausting, infuriating, beautiful, and sometimes tragic experiences of his life working in the NHS. It is an extraordinarily gripping read that will move you both to tears of hysterical laughter and of sadness. It has sold over a million copies, has won four National Book Awards and was a Sunday Times number one bestseller for eight months. Now he's on the road, selling out the nation's biggest theatrical venues reading entries from a book that has been described as a love letter to our National Health Service.
1: So I, was writing these, I was writing these diaries, um, not just diaries. It was You're obliged to keep loads of different types of notes when you're a doctor. So obviously uh, you're writing your patient's notes, but yes. you also keep a log of stuff. You get your MOT once a year. And, and they'll say, you know, the deanery, who are the sort of the people who check that you're you're progressing uh, adequately, want to see your your paperwork. And so you show them, I did 227 cesarean sections and, you know, 94 hysteroscopies. And they go, good, good, good. So you're keeping those records. You're also meant to do what's known as reflective practice. Right. So that if something bad happens or something upsetting happens, you write down what has happened and how that has, uh, you know, informed you as a doctor and uh, which is which is a healthy and helpful thing to do. I um I was also writing down all the weird shit that happened to me. Um <laughs>
0: of which at, there was a
1: lot. Of which there was a lot of which there is a lot for for any doctor. Mm-hmm. I suspect in retrospect it was my therapy looking for the light amongst the dark. Uh because no one teaches you how to cope with mm-hmm. the bad days so you find your own way through and for me it was being a sort of you know low rent you know <laughs> david Sedaris or something yeah, finding sort, the of, material. Yeah, just yeah. sort of yeah just sort of and that was that was how i kept going and it that became it, uh, it became a habit and a routine and uh and you know not to ruin the ending of the book but i um i leave medicine in 2010 and and at that point these diaries you know you know shoe boxes full of you know scraps of paper at the bottom of a filing cabinet were sort of uh forgotten about and i'd occasionally mm-hmm. refer back to them to you know upset guests at uh, at the pub and things uh <laughs> but uh dinner parties and uh yeah g- g- generally get invite uninvited from future engagements. Um, i have to
0: say when i was listening to the audio book it got to a point where i was like Do you know what? i'm just gonna press pause while yeah. i'm
1: cooking my arabiata <laughs> yeah uh yeah that's fair that's fair. Uh, um. And so and then um, I ended up in a in a totally different uh career. My my day job I would describe to people as working in television. I wrote um scripts for comedy as a script editor and for various um TV shows and and then something something happened. Sort of two things happened at once um the gmc who who regulate doctors wrote to me to say you know long time no disciplinary hearing it's been a it's been a bit of a time since you've seen a patient so we we're having to take you off you either have to you know re-register you know redo um do some sort of crystal maze thing to prove that you can still be a, like a doctor in a practical sense yeah. or uh, we need to take you off the register and i thought after you know, however long it was, over half a decade of not yeah. having been doctor, still being able to pay the gas bill, I thought, okay, fine. I think I don't need that as my insurance policy. I yes. can stop paying my subs, and I'm going to, you know, hand in my badge and gun. I cleared out loads of stuff from the from the spare room because I was like, well, I don't need to keep any of, yeah. any of this stuff. But um, I did. Uh, I did revisit the diaries, and around about the same time, the junior doctors were coming under fire, and and I realised that the doctors had a very quiet voice, mm. and uh which I understand if you're at a hospital 100 hours a week you don't have a very loud voice and uh and the government had a very uh, very very loud voice as as they do they got access to the entirety of the media and uh it was heartbreaking to hear misinformation
0: and the misinformation was that they were greedy
1: it was exactly that it was the doctors are striking because they want more money and they earn enough as it is and these junior doctors want more money. and it wasn't about that at all. It was really mm. weird. It was, uh, it, was a, it was a contractual issue about basically working conditions. And working conditions means patient safety and patient safety means the best interest of the patient. And the best interest of the patient is why doctors do their, their job. And the of government course. lied. Yeah. And I knew that was a lie. And I was consuming it on the outside as someone who knew what it was like on the inside. And I thought, you know, what what can what can I do? And my, the answer I came up with is reading out from some of my diaries in the Edinburgh Fringe. So, uh, I th- is that I, how it began? That's how it began. And I thought, uh, if I go up to Edinburgh, enough people will, you know, a, a couple of dozen people will come along every night or whatever, and then I'll, I felt like I've, I've done something. And uh, a, a strange thing happened when I was reading out from my diaries, uh, which was. Uh, my mate Mark Watson, who's a, is a brilliant comedian. It's like Edinburgh's like the AGM for comedians. It's the only time you get to see other comedians who's yes. normally, sort of, or writers, it's a very solitary business. Yes, it's our um, Christmas party. Yeah, really. exactly. Yeah. So um, I, he he saw the show and, and and dragged along just his mate Francesca, who turned out to be uh, my now editor at Picador. Oh, okay, uh, and uh, and she said after me uh, to me afterwards, could this be a book? How much of this have you got? And I was. My immediate reaction was, no, it's not a book because books are something that other clever, proper people write, and I th- always thought of publishing as quite a sort of fusty, old, weird yes. business. So, um, so I parked that, and then a couple of other people came up to me and were like, "Think that might be," a-? And, and and now and now it's a, and now it's a book. So there was never. And not
0: only is it a book, I know you won't say this, Adam. It is a phenomenally successful book. It's, I mean. Do you have any idea how much it's sold? Is that indelicate to ask? No,
1: I mean uh, they've they've started printing uh, million copy bestseller on the Jesus. front, so. Uh it's I don't I don't really know what, what so that's in this country but I, I it's done something like a hundred thousand in Poland it's like who is in thirty something countries it's, 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 it's
0: been a it's been an absolute phenomenon and the thing that I find extraordinary about it as someone recently published who is narcissistic and goes onto their Amazon reviews once a week is yours is the only book I've seen that has. It's never dipped under five star of customer reviews. I don't know where your horrible people are who are angry that they were expecting a Tupperware and instead came Oh, they're book. there, they're
1: there. <laughs> There's, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. You can, I, 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 I was told never to ever, to ever to look on your Amazon page. Oh, don't everyone look at your ran, don't look at the review. But it's... Um, because I know they must be majority right, because it's averaged. It's averaged at five stars. I do sometimes click on the one stars just <laughs> to see what's uh, what's really got people's goat. And you know, um, some of them are just people who hate hate the book, which yeah. is fine. They're welcome to that. But the annoying ones are like packaging damaged. <laughs> I know. Oh,
0: this sorry. took four days to arrive.
1: Oh, sorry. Oh, um, but the ones that
0: kill me the most are the five star reviews. Where they're mostly happy with the packaging or the price.
1: Yes. Yeah. No. Exactly. <laughs> or, or or a three star that says it's not for me. You know, it's not like, it's not it's not as in it's not for me. It's literally not for me. I've bought it for my niece or something. So I'll just I'll just give it a, it's like a middling <laughs> review as a result. That's
0: so annoying. In the book, you. The majority of the of the time that you reflect on is when you're working in OBS and Gynae, yeah. affectionately known as
1: Rats and Twats.
0: <laughs> so for anyone Arts f- and
1: labour, that's the uh, that's the parts that's the posh version. Very good. That's not mine. That's Chris Addison's joke. <laughs> he gave that to me.
0: <laughs> Can you uh, for anyone unfamiliar with what that that department department that's that's the wrong word. <laughs> That'll do. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Sorry, making yeah, you sound like self Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. What that department entails, what your work entailed there
1: so i mostly worked on on labour ward uh which is the most extraordinary wonderful part of the hospital you end up with twice the number of patients you start with which is mm-hmm. which is you know, a pretty mad batting average yeah. for you know for any any branch of medicine i think yeah. uh, like geriatrics is very jealous of <laughs> <laughs> of those figures um and so i did a lot of that and as the doctor um that means basically um stepping in when stuff's gone gone wrong because it's a midwife-led uh, unit. When all goes well, you never see a doctor. You hope to never see a doctor on labour ward and then it becomes more collaborative with the doctor and the midwives uh, at the point that it hasn't quite gone to plan. And so yeah. you basically learn four tricks as an obstetrician. There's the caesarean section, which we all know about. There's the uh, forceps, which is just metal salad tongs to pull the baby out. <laughs> There's... Uh, there's the Vontus, which is a little mini hoovy put on the baby's head and sort of suck it out as an alternative to the forceps. And the fourth thing is, you know, sewing up you mm. know, whatever mess you or the baby has uh, has made. And and so it's actually a relatively simple yeah. job, sort of on a on a technical basis. There's slightly more to the job uh, in that you have to work out when to do each of these four tricks yes. you've learnt. You know, so you're reviewing baby's heart rate and things like that. But I mean, that's what the that's what the the job is and. And it is such a privilege to play that role in the, mm-hmm. in the lives of, uh, of families and the most important uh, days of their life. Um, but what I hadn't really thought about when I jumped into this specialty, which I did after one year of working as a doctor, um, was that almost by definition the height of the highs is set off by the, by the depth of the lows. Of course. And um, I, I hadn't really considered what, you know, what my emotional wherewithal was. Um, the, the nature of the job is that more bad things happen than good, otherwise people wouldn't be in in hospital. Yeah. Um and every job this it's like a sine wave going from up to down to up to down. And there are, you know, flatter sine waves. You choose dermatology, derma holiday, it used to be called. <laughs> uh, and you know you're not going to have these sort of terrible acute moments, but you're never going to have the the you know the the great highs. Mm. It, um but you, you you can and will still kill your patients when you say that's just a mole and they, you've sent someone home with a malignant mm-hmm. melanoma. I mean that's you, you've you know you've killed you've killed your patient. But mm-hmm. uh, you can't escape that in any branch of uh, of medicine. But I think we need to be honest with it. And I don't. I, I sometimes initially I would I worried what if I'm putting people off um, doing medicine if they read my book and they were about to apply then they didn't. And that, now I think good. Because yeah, if that's yeah. enough to if knowing the truth of the job exactly. um is, is enough to, to put you off, then you'd have left at some point in the future and you're actually better giving the place to someone exactly. who's, who can deal with it. Because not everyone can. What Yeah.
0: And that's no bad it's of not it's a sign not. of weakness. It's it's some people will be able to deal with that and some people just won't, no sure. matter what they're training or And you know.
1: even if you think you can when you're sixteen, when you're filling out your UCAS form. Who knows if you, you know, ten years down the line, when you're actually certifying mm. your first death, how, mm. uh, how you are actually going to be able to, to, to do it?
0: Part of the book's most entertaining moments is the the moments you call the doctor I fell moments. Um, can you tell us what that means and some of the most extraordinary things that you were presented with?
1: Yes, I think the thumping baseline of every every doctor's life is uh, objects in orifices, <laughs> and and it really changes how you, how you think about people you know when you're walking down the street or sitting on the bus, you're like you, you you can't guess the sort of people who are going to rock up in your you know in your in your emergency department <laughs> having <laughs> having done that that sort of thing. Oh, I mean so many things uh the toilet brush um you know and that was Bristol's first, which, as oh, we all know is the is the most painful way to uh, insert a toilet brush. um a kinder egg containing an engagement ring.
0: That was the most extraordinary
1: yeah, that story was, that was, for me. That that was quite that was quite sure that seen me through a lot of uh, dinner party lulls, <laughs> That story. <laughs>
0: that was a woman who was proposing to her boyfriend.
1: Yes, on the 29th ninth of February, as per as per the weird tradition, and uh, yeah, so went to the expense of buying engagement in the game from the, um, the imagination of uh, putting inside a. A kind of surprise egg and then uh, and then whatever thought process uh about inserting it vaginally. Um the plan being that the the partner would sort of discover it, retrieve it, and then she could she could um propose, but it sort of shuggled itself lengthwise and <laughs> couldn't get it out, so we all met in all met in in hospital. And
0: you said she rather romantically and sweetly still was desperate to retain the surprise
1: Yes, oh that was, yeah So she hadn't told the boyfriend She hadn't told me So it was quite confusing When uh, she asked him to open it So I sort of gave him pair of, You know, the pair of latex gloves Sandblasting All romance <laughs> From the situation And, uh, yeah And he said yes Presumably Lovely. out of fear Mr. to <laughs> what who does that With a of surprise would do to him If he said no <laughs>
0: You also have um, included some extraordinary tales of cluelessness. My favourite being the man who said that absolutely no condoms fit him.
1: Yeah, turns out he was pulling them right down over his balls. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to, you have to. Keep a yes, mask-like straight face because your of doctor's course. not allowed to uh, to just burst out laughing. Mm. So, however fast the, the the feet are kicking under the water, you just have to smile. And you know, when the man in his eighties is talking about using this colossal butt plug called the Ass Master, <laughs> you just say, "And and what size of Ass Master?"
0: And that must be very hard because you're right. You know, at the, a ple- a doctor's. Office is a place where it should, where you should feel totally safe and like you can say absolutely anything. Yes. So it's it's so important that you don't feel, you know, self conscious. But that must be a challenge. Did you did you, especially as someone who looks for the funny and thinks it seems naturally, did you find that by that you became sort of unshockable?
1: Yes, and my. My barometer for all sorts of normal reactions mm-hmm. is now is now fucked. So like I don't. <laughs> it's really hard to to stress me out. Mm. Um, it's re- you know uh, I'm I'm great at poker. I mean they've got <laughs> like, got this, uh, all these things. Um, I can work. I can throw an all nighter, a couple of days in, in in a row when I'm late on a deadline, and my body's just like sure. I mean this is one of the things I can now do. I've got these these sort of tiny. Low rent superpowers. I mean, you say the doctor's office is sacrosanct. I did then go upstairs and write about them and then get them, you know, printed out a million times. So yeah. it's sort of, although, you know, the lawyers were very keen that I didn't go to prison. So a lot of a lot of stuff obviously did get, yes. get changed. They were, Yeah. In fact, the legal read, you know, they sort of, as you'll know from your book, they sort of, uh, the, a lawyer has to go through it and they write a, write a thing saying, we think you're probably safe, but why didn't you change that person's name? Yeah. The, the legal read that came back from the, the barristers that my, my, my publisher engaged was pretty much as long as the book.
0: Oh, really? Yeah,
1: because every single, every single page have mentioned three or four real people in a real place and so a real thing happened to, to them. So you had
0: to just fudge, you had to reverse sort of all the details about exactly them. Exactly, so yeah. lots
1: of Vaseline on the lens. So all yeah. names and places and, and dates, of course, changed because yes, people remember the of dates course, they had their, of their kids. In a way, they might not remember the date they had their appendix out. Um, and plus also I would take clinical details of one case and personal details of a second one that's similar and sort of do a cut and shut so no one person could could point at a diary entry and say that was me yeah see you in court
0: and you mentioned that you are now on tour doing 150 shows
1: yeah I I don't like to think about it like that (laughs) I'm doing three this week that's uh yeah
0: and (laughs) there's obviously been this incredible Positive reaction to the book. I haven't read any negative reviews. I don't know anyone who didn't love it. Every person I know who's read it has said to me, "You have to read it." What do you think it is? I know this will be embarrassing for you to have to reflect on this, but what do you think it is about the book that that people have responded so well
1: to? I think it's quite simple. It's because it's amazing. <laughs> no, it's a, it's, <laughs> it's it's uh, no, it's t- it's, t- it's two things. So first, <laughs> first of all. <laughs> First of all, it's the book is basically a love letter to the to the NHS. Yes, and uh, a million and a half people work for the NHS, and and do this most extraordinary job, going above and beyond the call of duty. We all know someone who works yes. for the NHS. The, the maths of it means we must, mm. um, and it's our greatest. Achievement as a civilized nation. I mm. really, really believe that free at the point of service, based on clinical need, not bank balance. And we, we will all we were all born they will all die there. We'll use it in the middle, um, and we're obsessed with it. Rightly, and and I think people want to know more about it. Yeah. And um, and we're all interested in the inner workings of uh, of hospitals. Yeah. You just have to watch. Watch telly, mm-hmm. both on the sort of reality side and the the amazing programs like Hospital and 24 Hours A&E, and A&E, and as well as on the on the fiction side, you know mm-hmm. some of the most successful dramas of all time and comedies as well. Of course, have have been yes. based in the hospital. We want yeah. it's a it's a it's a precinct to use the horrible uh, TV term that that we're interested. It's like medicine, we're obsessed about. Crime we're obsessed about and sex we're mm. obsessed about. And you know, that between the three of them that makes up a huge amount mm. of, of what we want. And I think um there there was there was interest in that. And and the, the second reason it did well is uh I've been surrounded from the start by an amazing team of people who've uh, who've who've made it all made it all happen and who I owe all the success. I think the author uh gets disproportionate. Credit, but I always thought it's a bit like being the the male partner in producing a a child. You do a sort of yes, relatively small amount of work yeah. a long time ago, yeah, and then you know, and then, then nothing. Mm. But you you get you get you get equal billing.
0: Mm. And I think as well, one of the reasons it's done so well is I found it because I'm so I'm a I'm a enormous hypochondriac. I'm not one who would have. I don't waste. I'm not always in the doctors, I promise. But I am someone who, when things are stressful, I do always default to something's wrong with my health. I don't know why. It's just, you know, I do often have anxiety about health. And I found this book one of the most reassuring things I've ever read because I think... It's so funny to me that it feels like something that you're battling through personally when you're writing the book is trying to work out how much hum- how much of yourself, how much of the human to put into the job. And it felt like yes. how much to relate, how much to communicate with people, how much to find out about them. You know, there's a heartbreaking moment where a patient who you really were very fond of dies and you want to go to their funeral and your consultant advises you not to. And in the end, you just go anyway. And it feels like that there's this pushback on don't be too human, but I think it's the human in the book and and understanding that the people who are looking after you in these hospitals are human and they have, you know, the same sense of humour as you, they have the same anxieties as you, even that they mess up sometimes like you do. I found incredibly reassuring.
1: Oh, I'm very pleased. And it made Um, me
0: feel in safe hands with this system.
1: Yeah, doctors for a very long time, since their invention have sort of felt they need to put themselves, uh, a lot of separation, so put them a bit higher up. Like the whole thing about, you know, doctors, you know, being doctor surname. Yes. No one wants, yes. you don't want that. You're allow- And it's obvious why it's developed. You want, if you're seeing the person who's interpreting the, the MRI of your brain or about to take a scalpel to your knee, they need to be absolutely, yeah, unimpeachably yes. correct and good and accurate. You don't want to think about, about them having any frailties. Uh because someone who someone who gets sick and gets sad also makes mistakes. You don't mm. want to think about that. Mm. But they are. And and I think it's this doctors have, have doctors have believed this, started to believe this this myth. Yes. And a superhuman.
0: Yeah, yeah. Which they're
1: not. They're yeah. all just they're all just teenagers who ticked a box on a mm. on a on a UCAS form. And it's okay to Cry at work, mm. and it's okay not to be able to cope. It's much more healthy to admit that, speak to someone, you know, get yourself sorted out. You're not going to be a, a good doctor. You're not going to be able to continue in the job. You will burn out mm. if you're if you're you know carrying this huge amount of of baggage.
0: Adam, on to your first love story. Can you tell me a story of first love?
1: So, my first love uh, is the piano uh and it's a real it's a very real love um but at the at the start of our relationship it was it was it was an arranged marriage it was <laughs> the fact that I was starting to learn the piano when I was four that can't wow. have just been me yes, so looking back uh my parents were clearly very keen that uh, but, and, you know, and it, and it paid off because, you know, I got, I got my, my, my grade A distinction that the medical school wanted to 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 <laughs> see. And it went from something that was a bit annoying uh, to have to practice my scales and my pieces every evening to realizing I was better at this than other people. And when you're good at something, you enjoy it more and then you, you do it more and you, and you enjoy it more. And it's always been the way I can switch off from the world.
0: Even now, even now, wow! If I'm
1: playing the piano, um, whether it's a piece that I've, you know, that I've, that I've been playing for 20 years, or just sort of or sight reading a bit of, you know, whatever from the sheet music in the piano stool, um, that's me totally out of the world into the uh, into the horror of my neighbours. I can I can do that for, I I could kill an entire day. Could you easily? Well, how wonderful
0: that you have that immediate escape route.
1: It is, and I think it's very, it's very useful. And I used it a lot when I was, uh, when I was a, a doctor. Yeah, I'm very, I'm very lucky to have a, to have a thing.
0: And is, is it a party piece? Is it something that drunkenly, if there's a piano, people will say tinkle the ivories, Adam?
1: Sometimes I generally, generally say, uh, say no, I'll make my excuses. But uh, certainly at, at Christmas, I'm more than happy to. Know, to, to bash out anything from uh, We Three Kings to All I Want for Christmas, and with everyone <laughs> singing around, because that's quite a nice, fun thing. But I, in my, strangely now in my in my show, because as it turns out, it's quite boring just listening to a man reading out loud for an hour and a half. Um, it I, certainly isn't. I've seen you do some of that. It's it's very very entertaining. But uh, I, I, I mix that up. I, I do some sort of. Com- I mean, comedy songs. That sounds god awful. Oh, what, do what, what's, what's a terrible phrase? But it, I mean, that's the that, that's what I'm going to have to describe them as. But sort of um, medical, yeah, medical based uh, comedy. Oh, uh, comedy that. music just to to break things up a bit. So, so some people do. The paying public get to get to hear <laughs> even from my actual friends. Don't. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Said when you were young, you'd never really thought about being a writer. It is now your full time job. It's also what you chose as your unrequited love story. Yes. <laughs> Can you tell me why that is?
1: It's because I I love writing and writing hates me. Uh, so it does. I don't know what. I imagine a lot of people who listen to to your podcast are are writers and will share this, but for the people who who do who don't, who don't write. I don't want anyone to, to think that the, that the sentence they read just sort of, f- mm. f- fl- if it was of mine, it certainly didn't flow up my head.
0: Something I find a myth that's touted about writing is that is that writers enjoy the activity of writing. I think that, that it's a very rare type of writer yes. who loves the yes. actual process. You know, to quote Dorothy Parker, the best bit of writing is is when she... When she sends it to the editor,
1: yes, exactly right. I like I like the ideas, and I I love sort of constructing my head. Oh, that's the actual, fun bit. That's isn't the fun it? bit It's the the annoying bit where you're sort of you're writing it out on a piece of paper or typing it, and then obviously I like having written.
0: Yes,
1: that's yeah. that that's good. The, the 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 middle bit's quite annoying. So I think a lot. Of, I don't think I'm alone as a writer in having a slightly. Uh, uh, it's like a difficult relationship with my job.
0: Yeah, I think it's the majority. And occasionally you do hear about these writers, like Martin Amis is one who, the, the, the process of writing, he says he just writes Gleeful, but then Martin fucking Amis would say that, it wouldn't he? would say he? that, yeah. <laughs> and what's your discipline like with writing now?
1: Oh, really bad. Mm. Yeah, all over the shop. Mm. Uh, I'm so distracted. Um, my best writing time is at night. Yeah. So between sort of 10 and 3. That's those are my best hours. Because Twitter started to go to sleep. I have exactly
0: and... the same because I'm so easily distracted. I need the world to be asleep, <sighs> exactly, basically. Exactly. Yeah. And your calling has gone from medicine, helping people, saving lives, to telling stories. And I was thinking about what that adjustment must have been like. Because the recur a recurring theme in your book is the collateral damage that a that a doctor's personal life faces. What what was it like when you found yourself moving into a new life where you had more time?
1: It was, it was extraordinary. It was, it was something I'd never had before. It was mm-hmm. my, The only job I'd ever had was being a, was being a doctor. And it does, it, it does affect friendships and relationships. And it's not just because of the number of hours that's on your contract. It's the fact that if it's 5 o'clock and your contract says you go home at 5 o'clock and then someone starts bleeding out on labour ward you stay and you sort them out that's not a that's technically a choice but if that was a choice for you you'd never gone to medicine in the first place so you stay and you and which means you're inevitably texting someone to say I'm really sorry I'm going to have to cancel on drinks or dinner and um this happens more often than it doesn't so you quickly become the flaky friend the one who's always bailing at the last minute so your friends stop inviting you out and your social circle contracts Mm -hmm. and and it's other weird things like Um, You move hospital once a year when you're a junior doctor and within quite large areas, like, for example, you could be randomly scattered around all of Scotland Mm, and you can't mm. buy a flat that's handy for all of Scotland. You can't rent a flat that's handy for all of Scotland. (laughs) So you have to say to your other half, you know, do you mind moving 150 miles away? Mm. And they might say yes once. They're not going to say yes (laughs) eight years in a row. And um, so a lot of a lot of doctors' relationships suffer for reasons much more complicated than just the job. i mean I'd be hugely oversimplifying to say that that's that's where um relationship i i talk about it in in, in, why that fell over um uh but it's a big factor and not just that side of things it's the it's the emotional you know uh the emotional load that you 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 carry with you yes, and most people choose. Uh, not to talk about at home, how was your day? yeah, fine, mm, mm. Uh, that's the, how you're trained as a as a doctor
0: and this leads on nicely to your passionate love because now, in a life which I'm sure is still very demanding of your time, but you have lots of time for trashy
1: telly absolutely absolutely <laughs> I sort of it's easy in the publishing world to be snobbish, isn't it, and we're sort of uh, we see post- people posting on social media, sort of uh, pictures of books that make them look clever. Um, I, I'm I'm slightly more honest than this. Any time I'm interviewed, and they ask me what am I reading. I'll, I'll be or what are you watching on telly? I'd love to be able to say it was some sort of some sort of German documentary, but it it never it never is. I've, I watch some absolute bullshit.
0: So, what's your favourite bullshit?
1: I'm currently watching you. Which is on Netflix, it's about a stalker. It's really good. It's just a soap. It's just nonsense. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> uh and, and James, uh my husband's got sort of much lower tolerance for this sort of stuff. He's just sort of I'm I'm watching that downstairs I'll walk past and tut. Uh but
0: oh no, it's great. I you know. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Love Island.
1: Oh, I do like Love Island. Yeah, I I'll I'll, I'll I'll watch it. I watch en- anything with a soundtrack. It was like. <laughs> also, Ian's so good on the uh, uh, on the voiceover.
0: Do you know I'm the only person in the world who hasn't ever watched one episode?
1: Oh, don't, because otherwise you'll never you'll never. That's you'll, what you'll, I'm you'll, 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 about. you'll miss your next deadline. Yeah. I'll watch stuff I've got. I'll watch darts. I mean, I'll watch stuff that I've got.
0: <laughs> so you really do just like kind of oh, zoning yes. out when you're watching uh, Yeah. TV. So let's yeah. just
1: have some flashing lights and colours and sounds.
0: I have a theory about why I was because I was surprised when when you told me that this was your passionate love. And do you think that you're making up for lost time with a, with indulgence? Oh Maybe I'm wrong, sorry Maybe, to, to be no, your no. There,
1: there, there might be there might be there might be something about because that because like you can't commit to that. a box set when you're working as a, exactly. a junior doctor. You can sort of barely commit to things like sort of having dinner.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's a kind of you know that's like a rites of passage of your of your twenties. Really, is that you spend so much time to slack jawed zoning out from reality in front of the television, and that's just a luxury that you were never really afforded.
1: Yeah, I I'm aware. You know, I'm I'm often in sort of meadery meetings where they are talking. This shows this meets that, and if either this or that, are something from a period of about a decade, I wasn't really watching telly yeah. or, or going to the cinema. Yeah. So yeah, I'm 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 catching up, and also I do I do appreciate reading books. Obviously, and watching telly that makes you think and immerses you in a world and challenges your perceptions, but to be honest much more often i just want to, to watch something that's sort of uh, sort of televisual mac and cheese
0: yeah totally escapism yeah and how much are you watching tv be be honest
1: oh probably no more than 5 hours a day don't want to you know I don't want my publishers to panic think <laughs> i'm not actually doing my work <laughs> oh on my main thing so um and this i'm not i'm not like sort of super politically Minded, I don't always, you know, I'm not always reading that bit of the paper. Uh, But when there's an election, when there's the when there's the all night footage, we'll get people round, put up ban. In fact, we um, for the for the election in which uh, Trump got in, we you know we had half a dozen people round or maybe more, and we put up. Bunting, and we had balloons, and we had uh, you know um, loads of American food and cupcakes and things, and um, and then it all got very uh, depressing. Obviously. Yes, very quickly. Yes, and, um, and then uh, and then everyone went home, but uh, you know, sort of slightly miserably in the in the in the in the early hours when it was inevitable what was happening. We went off to bed, and and we came down in the morning. I went off to to, to work to a meeting, and uh, and we looked back in through the window of the house. And Trump had just got in and we had this huge sort of stars and stripes bunting. I was like, no, I'm going back in and ripping it down. People <laughs> <laughs> are going to get the wrong impression.
0: <laughs> On to your story of everlasting love, which I am so, so pleased to hear because I could talk about this forever, is food.
1: Oh, do you just
0: love food? I do. It's, it's great, just the best, isn't, it? isn't it? It's
1: great, and and not even cooking. I'm so bad at cooking. Are you? Yeah. Um, we, in fact, I mean, this is uh, this is something almost too embarrassing to to say out loud. But um, when last time we moved, um, we'd put in a kitchen about two years before we'd moved, and the estate agent came around and was and was taking the photos and was sort of you know. Opened up the oven and it still had its polystyrene block inside from when it came from wicks or wherever it was. And so, <laughs> so, I mean, we're not we're not nature's cooks. But why? I mean, why 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 would we when there are so many people who are professionals?
0: Exactly.
1: And you know we we keep Deliveroo in business.
0: Okay, talk me through. Your favourite delivery? Where are you in Chiswick? In Chiswick.
1: Um, so this is
0: your moment to get so some can, free vouchers. Yeah. No, that's that's.
1: <laughs> there's a place called Outsider Tart, which is um, which is quite bad pun. It took me ages to. Realize what is it? What bad is pun that? on Outsider Art.
0: Well, that doesn't. Span, it doesn't really work, but... does
1: it? It's like they've taken a really little known phrase exactly. <laughs> that doesn't really relate to their their their. There was, there was, there was one I remember from must have been quite near my school or something called Cake Expectations, which was a cake shop. I was just like, oof, even then, I knew I've identified a poor pun. Um, so anyway, outside of tart, and they they do American comfort food.
0: Oh, lovely!
1: And uh, when you're. When you're any time, basically when you're writing, I'm vegetarian, and they do a nice, they do a nice veggie chili. They'll do mac and cheese. Mm, They'll nice. do those, those are different brownies, and they make it all in there. So that's um, so there's a lot of you know. I'm on first name. I think I, I now know every single delivery uh, <laughs> driver in in the area.
0: And I know this is an incredibly difficult question, but if you had one meal left, one your desert island meal, what would it be?
1: Oh, that's a really good question. Um, well, the starter uh, would be a French onion soup. Yeah. Because... But you
0: know vegetarians aren't allowed to eat that.
1: I know, but I mean, so I'm sort of vegetarian. I'm one of the vegetarians who doesn't like the... I'm not a moral vegetarian. Right. For example, you know, I you, you can see I'm wearing... Uh, I'm dressed entirely in leather. So <laughs> He's wearing so, a leather yeah. jumpsuit, yeah. But... Um, it's. Uh, I was always like a fussy kid eating and a sort yeah. of, I've never, I'm just sort of badly wired in terms of I don't like the taste of, I will sometimes be out of some fancy place and, you know, and... You know, someone we're out with will say, "I'll oh, try the prawns; it's the best prawns in the whole world." And I'll, every few years, I'll have a go and a nibble. I'm just like, no, it's just I'm just not. It's just I don't know if it's nature or nurture, yeah. but I've been, you know, something's gone wrong. I don't like that. so. Yeah, I'm I'm happy to have a Haribo.
0: So, French onion soup. What are you drinking with this Desert Island meal?
1: Um, oh, that's good. I do I do like alcohol.
0: I love it. I've,
1: I've got a theory about alcohol. I think it might be addictive. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think you may be onto something. No, so, uh,
1: so probably, probably I'll start with a dark and stormy. So rum and ginger. I like a, I like a, I like a diplomatico rum. It's sort of, it's the sort of rum that you could drink neat, you know, in Lovely. an emergency. <laughs> but done so, the rum's sort of the mixer. You don't want too yes. much ginger in there. Yes, yeah, definitely. So, so do that sort of, do that upside down. Because I, I think because I've said mac and cheese twice already in our in our in our chat I'm, i think i think I'm, that's my brain telling me i need to have mac and cheese Excellent as as my, as my as my main carbs i mean that's that's what it's about isn't it yeah. i would i would have mac and cheese on toast oh, no. i know gl- i'd gladly have that with a jacket potato on the side i mean
0: <laughs> famously on my 29th birthday when i was very hungover i ordered a baked potato with mash on the side
1: oh lovely yeah i'd have that <laughs> on a pizza oh yum
0: <laughs> um, and what would you have for pudding
1: oh i don't know uh sort of sort of anything um i like um i like a trifle Ooh. it's it's look it's a quite a retro it is yeah. sort of last uh you know it's when when I'm on death row, they'll have to get a sort of retired chef out to sort of to sort of create this <laughs> for me won't they? uh but um i think uh yeah i like a i like a trifle 'cause you can you can smuggle um, smuggle booze into booze into that i've got so i've got booze in the in my start is there there's booze in french in in yeah there's there's
0: booze in every single component of that
1: meal (laughs) yeah and just sort of uh i drink more uh the 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 type of wine that i really like is is wine with the high alcohol content so sort of that's that's the bit on the wine list i'm i'm looking at (laughs) something very heavy someone someone told me that um the way you can tell uh, how much alcohol in it. It, it? When you swirl it around, the like the the legs of the wine the up syrupy, the glass. Yeah, yeah. That, how much it cleans the glass. Yeah, which I guess makes sense. That's that's the white the white spirit in it, just sort of cleaning the glass. So um, so yeah, I don't know what I'm having with that big gloopy Merlot.
0: Oh, lovely. Adam, there is an extra love story um, that I wanted to talk to you about because it's one that shines through your beautiful book and one that you've um, touched on, which is uh, the love that you have for our National Health Service. Reflecting on your time as a doctor and talking about it, and no doubt, I'm sure, hearing many, many people's experiences when you've kind of been on the road and and talking about the book, um, must have given you proper time to think about how you feel towards the system as it stands, and what you see the future of it to be? Can you share your thoughts with me about that?
1: It's the National Health Service is is amazing, and it isn't hospitals and bedpans and CT scanners. It is the million and a half people who keep it going by going above and beyond uh, the call. And and we have a we have a system that whoever you are whether you live on the streets, whether you live in a castle, you will receive the best care that, uh, that the service can, can provide. And it's, and it's a beautiful thing. And we need to be very scared about losing it because the alternatives. 600,000 people a year in the States, I was reading, go bankrupt a year because of medical bills. It's one of the biggest, if not the biggest reason for people, mm. to, for people to lose everything they have, mm. for something that should be. We think of as, a, as, a, as our human rights mm. to get... And it should be. That's what it should be. Um, we're at a crunch time uh, with the NHS in this country. We need to have a big and very grown-up conversation as a country about what we want the NHS to provide and how we want to pay for it. And I hope we decide as a country that we have this amazing thing that's 70 years old and it's free for everyone at the point of service. But if that is the case, it needs more money. We're going to have to put our hands in our pockets. Or we need to say, I think we pay enough and we need to uh, we need to have another, another insurance top-up model, whatever it is. Um, and if that happens, there'll be a two-tier system. And it is a fact that in a two-tier system, people like us will be fine. The people who won't be fine are the people right at the bottom. And I'll write an article every so often in a paper or something and then some, and if, it's, if it's anything about the NHS, someone will reply with their fear about how to solve the problem. And it'll be something like, just charge a fiver to see a GP. Just charge a tenner to go to A&E. That'll. There are, we don't hang out with them. But there are a huge number of people in this country for whom a fiver is not the difference between, you know, your two choices at Pret, A fiver mm. is the is is the difference between their kids eating mm. and mm-hmm. their kids not eating. Those are the people who will suffer if it changes from what we have at the moment. And they're the people with the quietest voice. And that's why it's it's the perfect crime. Yeah. Anytime and a government does something like this, because the people it will actually affect have very little chance to to stop it happening the people making the decisions and the people who who make all the noise when the decisions are made w- will be fine but any um, anytime more nhs money goes to a private service it's a slippery slope that's heading towards this this gingerbread house and we mm. need to be we need to be very very mindful of, of of that ghost of christmas future but it is a it is a turning point um, a good thing happened um, when they announced that more money was going to the NHS. It isn't enough, though. Yeah. So to be ultra-boring, there's a concept called health inflation. And health inflation is the amount of money you need to pump into a health service to provide the same service you did the year before, so just to tread water. And yeah. for the NHS, that's about 3%. Yeah. And for years and years and years, the health service got an extra 3% in real terms every year. For a period of eight years, there uh the last eight years, uh, the NHS got an increase of one percent. And so I don't think you read my book and think that's a relaxing job, that's an over resourced system. It wasn't, it was already tough. Now yes. it's been really, really, really stretched. And now it, it's sort of they're talking in, in rough numbers about three percent increase year on year. But nothing's happened to make up for this for this yeah. this yeah, exactly, yeah. this big drought. Mm. Um, but it's not too late we need to we need to stem the stem the huge number of people leaving because they're getting burnt out and they're getting burnt out because they're doing two three four people's jobs and and that involves you know more resources coming in and and soon so obviously the n h s has had its seventieth birthday last year there is no reason it shouldn't have another uh seventy years at least but uh we can't take it for granted and we need to watch out for people who don't have its best interests at heart, because that's a lot of money to be made from, from health. If that's your, if that's your motivation and, uh, and we need to be, we need to really, we need to stand up for it and fight for it and defend it. And your MPs, I know no one's done anything else for the last couple of years, other than Brexit, but everything else has sort of gone, gone by the wayside, but your MPs will listen to you and, it doesn't matter what colour tie they wear. I think there's a lot of love for the the NHS. You know, even in the in the, in the weird Houses of Parliament. Um, but you, you can, you can, you can fight for it. And I think we'll need people to fight for it because right. I, 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 it won't it won't be it won't necessarily be, uh, be our government fighting for it.
0: And without giving any kind of spoilers, people who haven't read the book, the closing chapters of this is going to hurt are very moving and you describe how there is one very, very tragic, highly traumatic incident that happens um, when you are delivering a baby that is, is it fair to say, the the kind of main reason why you left?
1: It is. I mean, all you ever want is a healthy mum and a healthy baby Mm -hmm. and I was the most senior doctor on on the labour ward on this moment and we ended up with neither of those two things, uh, which was... I'd obviously had difficult stuff and sad stuff happen before. It's impossible not to. But this is the first time I was the as the most senior person. It was the worst thing that had ever mm. uh, happened to me, and I realised that I didn't have the emotional armour. Yeah, you know my coping mechanism of writing stuff down, which had served me very well for you know however long or well, seven years, that that was that was more of an insult that, than I had the, the adequate defences for.
0: And you describe how you in that. In that situation, you were given because it was quite a unique situation. You were given the rest; of you were told to go home for the rest of your shift. But there was also definitely an expectation that you would be back in the next day, and that reset would have been pressed.
1: Absolutely, there's there's no there's not enough slack in the system that means you can leave on time. There's certainly no slack that yeah. says you, you you could probably do it a couple of weeks off. It was like I'd said I'd sprained my ankle. Yeah. Oh no, that's awful. You all right? Mm. But obviously, you can do clinic mm-hmm. tomorrow, right? But because no, otherwise, yeah. there's, no one, there's no one in clinic. Yeah. Um, but it's the approach of a, a, a doctor: you just deal with it and, and, and move on. But I, I didn't deal with it. I was a complete, I was a different doctor.
0: Mm-hmm. I was same
1: skin, different doctor. I, uh, I was too many people getting cesarean sections. I think because I wanted to prevent what had happened ever happening again. Even though I knew that nothing I could have done, yeah, it was just random, terrible circumstance. Yeah. nothing I could have done would have prevented it. But I wanted to try and prevent anything bad ever happening to me ever again and people I wasn't talking to 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 or anyone who wasn't on that ward about about it but you know people people here because you're not meant to talk about these things and and friends would say to me you know if you're the most senior doctor on that on a labour ward something like that'll happen every five or six years and I, I realized they were tra- saying that to try and make me feel better yeah. it's not my fault but I realized I couldn't face that ever happening to me ever again so yeah. now I'm a uh, now a bad uh, work means look The microphone hasn't recorded properly, or you know, Mm -hmm. stuff that literally doesn't matter in the in the Mm -hmm. scheme of things. Um, So yeah, it was that was that was the thing that made me that, that that made me that made me leave.
0: And the kind of closing pages of your book, you talk about the fact that after it was published, you you went to sort of town halls and you were talking about the book, and and in the in the audiences, you would say how many people here have a relationship or are in close proximity with someone who works for the NHS and nearly all the hands would always go up in the room. Yeah. And something that readers would often ask you after reading this extraordinary book is what can I do to help? And a very pertinent message that relates to the incident that you just described is that you said that the best thing you can do is is give space and support to the people that you know that are working in the NHS give them give them time to speak about their experiences and let let us try and reconfigure the kind of disposition of what medical professionals should be
1: yeah I th- and I, I really feel strongly about that and we we we're, we're trained not to talk about our days and that's unhealthy and there is very there's limited to zero support um certainly in hospitals um for doctors who who are having either an acute bad day or a chronic build-up of stuff and we all need a a shoulder to to cry on and the first couple of times you ask you know you take someone out for a you know for a coffee or a drink and and ask how their day was then they're not going to but just to know you've got someone that you can open up to is is enough and and doctors need to do it to their colleagues. And, um, and I talk about doctors because that's all I know, but the same holds true. If you're a doctor or a midwife or a nurse or a physio yeah. or a paramedic or a pharmacist or a OT or an ODP or a dietitian. there are, there are a hundred, you know, specialties pulling together to, mm. to, to, to keep the hospitals going. And they all, they're all pieces of the same jigsaw who have the same conditions and the same stresses. And, um, yeah, they are just they are just humans with, with frailties and um, working under harder conditions than ever, far harder now than than when I was when I was working. And yeah, you can you can make a difference by writing to your MP, but you can probably make a bigger difference by by looking after your you know your cousin or your next door neighbour or your mate from uni.
0: Adam Kay, thank you so much for sharing your love stories with me. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Love Stories. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes to give the series a boost and help others find it. And you can buy my book, Everything I Know About Love, published by Figtree, which is out in paperback on the 7th of February with a brand new bonus chapter, Everything I Know at 30. You can find my book in Waterstones, on Amazon and in all good bookshops. Or buy the audiobook with the bonus chapter on Audible. Love Stories is recorded in the Penguin Studio in London. The producer is Adrian Cecil. The editor is Richard Hughes. The music was composed and recorded by Lauren Benstead. Tune in next week, when another guest will be telling me their love stories.